hppodcraft.com. The long conversation of Zamakona and his visitors took place in the green-blue twilight of the grove just outside the temple door. Some of the men reclined on the weeds and moss besides the half-banished walk, while others, including the Spaniard and the chief spokesman of the Sath Party, sat on the occasional low monolithic pillars that lined the temple approach. Almost a whole terrestrial day must have been consumed in the colloquy, for Zamakona felt the need for food several times and ate from his well-stocked pack, while some of the Sath Party went back for provisions to the roadway where they had left the animals on which they had ridden. At length, the prime leader of the party brought the discourse to a close and indicated that the time had come to proceed to the city. That was the opening of Chapter 5 of the H.P. Lovecraft Zelia Bishop collaboration, The Mound. This is the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. And hppodcraft.com. I am Chris Lackey. And I am Chad Pfeiffer. And that was our reader for this week and the last couple of weeks, uh, Jimmy Aiken. Thank you, Jimmy. Good job. Uh, we, You know what? We want to plow through the story today, uh, what yep. we've got left of it. So let's get some announcements out of the way. As usual, we're still selling soundtracks from the, of the music from the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. Donate 10 bucks for Volume 2. $15 or more, and you get Volumes 1 and 2. We send it as a digital download. Yep. And that is that. Uh, Chris, you've got your Yeah, April up, 15th right? in London is going to be H.P. Lovecraft Reanimated, which is going to be kind of a multimedia entertainment show at a place called the Horse Hospital. April 15th. Uh, tickets are still on sale, but they're selling out relatively quickly, so you might want to get them if you think you're going to be in London around that time. A while back, I'd mentioned on the show that I went to go see the staged reading of Reanimator the Musical here yeah. in L.A. Mm-hmm. that Stuart Gordon was doing. Well, they finally got funding, and the, the show's playing right now. Uh-huh, yes, great. I saw that. I saw yeah. that. It's getting I haven't great seen reviews the show. around town. I, I haven't seen it either, but apparently yeah. it's... I mean, it's everything I saw in the reading, but they've staged it, and there's gore and effects. I think they have a little splash zone in the audience. and Oh, like you know, an Jordan. area where if you sit, you'll get gooed on? Yeah. You'll get gore all over you. A la, you, which a la is, is cool. Gallagher kind of kind of thing. Yeah, I have this uh, a creepy friend who was like, I found out where you can sit if you want to see the most nudity. So apparently, there's that too. There's nudity in it. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Wow. Well, come on, it's Stuart Gordon. Right. Um, is is uh, and, uh, who does Gallagher play in it? <laughs> Gallagher <laughs> is Herbert West. Oh wow. Yeah. It's yeah, good that he's he, getting away. He's a little old for the part, but eh, all right. I know, but nobody works a watermelon like that guy. That's true. Uh, George Wendt is in it still, though. Norm right, from yeah. Cheers. Yeah, he's still playing Halsey. Dr. Halsey. So there's that if you want to check it out. Um, and also lots of news on the Facebook page this week about Mountain of Madness taking a dive. Yeah, yeah, that's the that's been big chatter, but it's, it, seems like, it seemed unlikely to me that the yeah. studios would be willing to put $150 million into a, an R-rated horror film. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, we had a conversation about it a few shows ago that turned out to be pretty prescient because that's exactly what happened. Yeah. So wait a minute. This is a rated R horror movie. We're not putting $500 million into this. It's a shame because I think it would have been really cool to have a Lovecraft movie be uh, big time. But maybe somebody else will do it and it'll be better and it won't be. A, you know, that's what I have personal and aside. They want to do the movie R. However, I don't really think it needs to be an R-rated film. The only really gory bit is when the scientists bodies after the elder things kind of wake up and they dissect them they discover the vivisected bodies and i think you could show that in a way that isn't uh as gory yeah you just show a little bit of gore and then cut back to the yeah. guys who discover it and they just all go oh that's so gross like that and then you'll know <laughs> 
that it's horrific what they're looking at. It's, it'll be like a honey badger eating a cobra. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I could take care of all these problems for Hollywood. I don't know why they never Yeah, why aren't they asking you? Anyway, let's get into this. All right, well, I'm guessing that listeners that have come this far with us don't need much of a summary, but... Here's a really quick one. In the mound thus far, we've got our American Indian ethnologist who's in Oklahoma studying ghosts who haunt a mound where locals keep disappearing. Uh, This ethnologist goes up to the mound. He finds a cylinder there that contains a 400-year-old account by a Spanish explorer named Zamacona of his time in an underground world, which is presumably below this mound. So the ethnologist takes the account back to his lodging, translates, translates the account, and that translation is more or less the story that we've been looking at. Lee Zamacona, during his time exploring with Coronado, he was told by American Indians that there was this underground realm of golden cities. So he traveled down through a passageway in a ravine to find this world. He finds it. Uh, there's old ones down there who are these basic alien, half-ghost creatures who look sort of like Native Americans. And, uh, you know, they're these pervert fascist socialists who create half-human corpse slaves and they can become immaterial at will. They ride on uh, uh, half-unicorn, half-human creatures. Exactly. They enjoy orgies. And yep. uh, they're happy to get intelligence of the world above, which they retreated from centuries before. And they decide that they're going to be very hospitable with Zamacona. Unfortunately, though, now that he's there, he can never leave right. uh, by their edict. So that's where we are. We had left off right after Zamacona's first meeting with the Old Ones, detailed in that opening reading. Mm-hmm. And uh, now that they've had this day-long conversation, exchanging information mentally, now it's time for them to jump on those animals, those <laughs> unicorns, and uh, <laughs> go, go into the city. What are they called? The Gyathan? Uh, yeah, Gyathan. That's correct. They uh, describe them as great, great floundering white things with black fur on their backs, a rudimentary horn in the center of their foreheads, and an unmistakable trace of human or anthropoid blood in their flat-nosed, bulging-lipped faces. Hmm. Sounds a little racist to me. <laughs> I, I think I remember <laughs> seeing some illustrations of these things. Who did them? Do you remember? No. Well, they're part human. Yeah. And they eat. There's this slave class, which is also part human. And mm-hmm. that's the principal meat source of everybody. And they, they eat that stuff. Yeah. They're also kind of part reptilian because they come from Yoth, which is that. The red world. Yeah. The red world. that's even more subterranean. And, and the people there, they think were some kind of reptilian race. Which made me think maybe they're the same as the, the creatures in the nameless city, the yeah. crocodile men. Yeah, could be. Uh, well, that's where the things are from, so they're kind of reptilian, too. Right. You'd highlighted a passage here. Uh, it was Zamacona climbs, you know, even though it repels him, he climbs on one of these unicorn deals, and he goes up with the aliens for the city. They're given a tour along the way. You know, they see all sorts of cities and buildings, but there's this one squat temple they pay special attention to. It had been built to house a black-toed idol called, uh, yeah, help me with this, Sathagua? Yeah, that's right, Sathagua. Now, Sathagua is... Now, that's not Lovecraft. That actually has come up with Sathagua. Oh, really? He borrowed that from Clark Ashton Smith. Oh, wow. Yeah. I guess he has cribs and things here and there, but that this is the first time I could think of him really taking something from somebody else's. Yeah, and incorporating it into into his mythology. I believe Sathagua was first mentioned in The Tale of Satampa Zeros. That's the Smith story that Sathagua... Well, as they're talking about Sathagua, it says this... Yothic legend said that it had come from a mysterious inner realm beneath the red-litten world, a black realm of peculiar-sensed beings, which had no light at all, but which had had great civilizations and mighty gods before ever the reptilian quadrupeds of Yoth had come into being. Many images of Sathagua existed in Yoth, all of which were alleged to have come from the black inner realm, 
and which were supposed by Yothic archaeologists to represent the aeon-extinct race of that realm. The Black Realm, called Nkai in the Yothic manuscripts, had been explored as thoroughly as possible by these archaeologists, and singular stone troughs or burrows had excited infinite speculation. So that's where the thing had come from. I think it's interesting that within Sath, there's the subterranean world of Yoth, and then even within Yoth, there's even a further civilization that they excavated at one yes. point, this Nakai. Yeah. Now, at some point, the archaeologists, some archaeologists from Sath went below Yoth to this realm. Yeah, to the Red, to the Redland world. Mm-hmm. Well, because when they, they found the figure of Sagua and Yoth, and they brought it up, and then because people are all into cults and stuff, they started worshiping Sagua yeah. in Sath, and it became like a big deal, like it rivaled even Yig and Tulu. Mm-hmm. But then some archaeologists went down into that Nakai area, and they found this civilization of like amorphous lumps of black slime that could take shapes. And, mm-hmm. and that's where the god had come from, and that freaked them out, so they sealed up the passageway and they banned the cult. <laughs> yeah. Now that, for me, I like that kind of stuff. I'm into that kind of Lovecraftian myth kind of thing, you know, where you've got these stories about these ancient civilizations and these people found some stuff they didn't like and it freaked them out and they started a cult and, you know, all that. Yeah. I, I'm into that. That's that, that part of the story I dig. Um, I don't, but that's cool. I like the black amorphous things that could change shape. And, I mean, that was an interesting right. thing, but right. I'm still not dick. I, apolo- I I have to apologize to the listeners. I, I, we're getting some responses where people are like, I actually like this story and I'm, re- I'm really sorry I don't like it. You can't help it though, dude. If you don't like it, you don't like it. I just can't help it. Yeah, it's no good to me. Anyway, they, they arrive at Sath mm-hmm. on this wagon train of unicorns and it's very large. It's very impressive. It's beautiful. Although Zamacona is getting freaked out by these half-human creatures doing the farming. Right. Well, they're, they're like the zombie people that are out doing some farming stuff and they're missing like limbs and some of them are missing heads and stuff. Yeah, why is that? <laughs> I don't know. You think a head's pretty important. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know it's it's because the people are such creeps there that they torture these things, right? Right, yeah. They need new fun things to do, so they'll take these servants and lop off a head or switch their organs around. Or... They just mess them up, and then they put them back to work, which is really just weird and gross and not particularly interesting. Yeah, it's certainly depraved. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, they give that whole impression when they, the city's huge, but like there's these big towers there, and nobody really even uses the tops of those towers anymore, so they're in disrepair. It's like we're seeing the civilization that had reached a scientific apex and enlightenment at some point in the past, and then because of the privilege that they were afforded through those developments, they fell yeah. into decadence. Right. One thing that's awesome during the travels, they pause at these temples for Yig and Tulu mm-hmm. and Nug and Yeb and the not-to-be-named one. But his main guide... You know, he takes him into all these, and each one, they kind of check out the orgies that are going on in there. (laughs) (laughs) Zamacona's not into it, because he's uh, pretty Catholic, so it makes him pretty uncomfortable. Yeah, I imagine it would be a little strange. There's one squat black temple that had been turned into a shrine of Shubnagurath. Yeah. The all-mother and wife of the not-to-be-named one. So, yeah, you told me before that Shubnagurath was married, so there you go. Supposedly to Yogg-Sothoth. At some point, Lovecraft said that in one of his letters. So the not-to-be-named one, then, would be... Yeah, if I mean, if we're sticking with what Lovecraft said later in one of his letters. Yeah. Even though typically uh, the not-to-be-named one, or he who should not be named, is typically Haster. Well, Shubnagarath could be married to a couple dudes. <laughs> who knows? Uh, you know, that's something, actually, I've been getting quite a few emails lately about people, I don't know if you've been getting them as well, because sometimes they come to both Chad and I, I don't know if you've been reading them, in, in some forum talk, where people are talking about Lovecraft and canon. Like, whether this is uh-huh. a canon Lovecraft story. And I don't think that that concept of canon really applies with Lovecraft. Because 
he always changed things around to suit whatever story he was specifically working on at the time. Yeah. And and he didn't really feel obligated to stick with any one particular kind of mythology or story even. Like he would just write it one way. If he later on he wanted it to be a different way, he would just change it. So there is really nothing that is official Lovecraft canon. He just wrote a bunch of different things, some of it similar to others. And you just pick and choose and make up your own canon on whatever you want to that's out there. But <laughs> there's nothing official that exact. So this story is an official Lovecraft story. Well, he wrote it. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's as, as official as, you know, these types of things get. Yeah, sure. I mean, especially when you think that a lot of these things weren't published till after he was dead. Yeah. You know, I would say like Charles Dexter Ward or Dream Quest are probably, if you're a completist, you'd want to read those things. But are they, I don't know if you'd say that's part of the canon because they weren't published, you know, I, I, I yeah. don't know. Like, like I'm going through the Sherlock Holmes books now and there's definitely a canon there. There's like 55 short stories and there's four novels and right. it's very definite. For the first time in a while, I've been reading more. I just haven't had a lot of time to read over the last year. And, and so Lovecraft, when I do read, it's this kind of stuff. Like I've been reading uh, Sax Romer's Fu Manchu book, which are fun, but not great. But Sherlock Holmes was so well-written and when you get to break away from, say, The Mound and read something by Conan Doyle that's, like, gripping and quick, it really makes coming back to this a chore, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, ah, I got to – anyway. So anyway, we, yeah, just just on that, Lovecraft doesn't really have canon. I don't even think that concept was something that people really stuck to. I think that's more of a modern construct, the canon. You know, like, this is – Yeah. When they, somebody creates a universe and the, these are the rules and this is what actually happened and this is what didn't happen. I feel like that's kind of a Star Wars, Star Trek kind of – kind of thing yeah well i mean i guess it's an elastic term i mean certainly he didn't define his mythology that was something that kind of happened later yeah, absolutely. It was, but i canon more specifically refers to what is the series of things that you need to read to have an author's kind of complete right but you know you use that in terms of what's the canon of western literature for example you go through high school you read this mm -hmm. you know i don't know what's canon and what's not i mean lovecraft wrote it so there you go the end one i don't think Zelia had much to do with it other than again she didn't she gave him an idea mound. that was it yeah. she said hey it's a there's this ghost you know there's a ghost at night that's a headless woman and there's a ghost at day who's a guy go <laughs> right <laughs> well, on this trip too there's this arena on the outskirts of town that his guide the guy's got a stupid name too it's like gil hatha yin it's his yeah. main guy that he talks wants to take him out to the at&t sports center or whatever it is on the the outskirts <laughs> of sath and uh <laughs> they're that sophisticated they have sponsorships too so um he doesn't want to go though because he's just like you know what that i don't need to see yeah whatever's going on in there so they finish the tour and then it sort of turns into the prisoner right they give him a house in the suburbs yeah he's got his own affection group to hang out with yeah they don't have families or wives or husbands they have yeah. affection groups and they're just right. people that they hang out with and they live with and you know talk about I, I, he gets the uh, noble women of the most extreme and art enhanced beauty yeah they have plastic surgery like they the, do the Real Housewives of Sath. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Real Housewives of Sath. Oh, he give dude. they they give him a schedule, you know, where it's like you basically you do some guest lectures in the morning. Yeah. You hit the library to learn about Sath. You beat on some slaves. Hit the buffet. You know, maybe it's Pancake Tuesday. Then you get a little orgy in. Yeah. For bed, catch Scooby Doo. You know, whatever they they've got it all lined out for him, and, and Zamacona settles into this new world, and and that takes us into chapter chapter six. six. Thus was Panfilo de Zamacona y Nunez absorbed for four years into the life of the sinister city of Sath in the blue-litten netherworld of Cainian. All that he learned and saw and did is clearly not told in his manuscript. 
for a pious reticence overcame him when he began to write in his native Spanish tongue, and he dared not set everything down. Much he consistently viewed with repulsion, and many things he steadfastly refrained from seeing or doing or eating. For other things he atoned by frequent counting of the beads of his rosary. He explored the entire world of Kainyan, including the deserted machine cities of the middle period on the gorse-grown plain of Nith, and made one descent into the red-litten world of Yoth to see the Cyclopean ruins. He witnessed prodigies of craft and machinery which left him breathless, and beheld human metamorphoses, dematerializations, rematerializations, and reanimations, which made him cross himself again and again. His very capacity for astonishment was blunted by the plethora of new marvels which every day brought him. Yeah. So there's lots of amazing stuff to look at, but, you know, he wants to leave. Four years. Well, you know, what's funny about that, there's that the one line in there, much he consistently viewed with repulsion and many things he steadfastly refrained from seeing or doing or eating. So that's it. Mm. But for other things, he atoned with frequent counting of the beads of his rosary. So <laughs> he's doing some naughty stuff, too. He's not oh, being yeah. completely, you know, ah, no, I'm Catholic. I don't do those things. He's probably, you know, getting a little tickle on his nuts and stuff, you know. Things like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's the know. primary means of communication in the affection group. Yeah, it's a little the nut, nut tickle. The, yeah, the nut tickle. <laughs> so he wants to leave because the people are screwed up and he feels guilty about right. the dirty business he's been getting involved in. Uh, it just sounds really wild down there. You know, the people, they need new sensations. They're always turning into vapor and then turning back again. And, and yeah. uh, Zamacone, even I think once he even tries to make a journey out, but he gets stopped. Mm-hmm. And they say, I don't think it's a good idea. You should go home. So... He resolves he's going to write an account of what's going down on there, and he's going to keep it in this cylinder of Tulu metal so that yeah. if he does make it, somebody will find it, and the metal will be evidence that he's not lying. Exactly. Uh, he does something smart. He starts holding back info a bit on the outside yeah, world. because he's afraid that they're going to start thinking he is not useful anymore, and they'll do something rotten to him, eat him, or you know, make him a, a, a meat slave or whatever. So he just kind of starts going, well, you know. Oh, uh, you know, that's a whole other story. I'm going to tell you about that some other time, but let's talk about this. So he just keeps throwing out these things to sort of keep him interested, but not give him any specific details. You know, the more he learns about the elements of the Sath society, the more freaked out he gets and, and the more apprehensive he is and the more he, he wants to leave. Yeah. The more Zamakona studied these things, the more apprehensive about the future he became because he saw that the omnipresent moral and intellectual disintegration was a tremendously deep-seated and ominously accelerating movement. Even during his stay, the signs of decay multiplied. Rationalism degenerated more and more into a fanatical and orgiastic superstition, centering in a lavish adoration of the magnetic Tulu metal, and tolerance steadily dissolved into a series of frenzied hatreds, especially towards the outer world of which the scholars were learning so much from him. At times, he almost feared that the people might someday lose their age-long apathy and brokenness and turn like desperate rats against the unknown lands above them, sweeping all before them by virtue of their singular and still-remembered scientific powers. But for the present, they fought their boredom and sense of emptiness in other ways, multiplying their hideous emotional outlets and increasing the mad grotesqueness and abnormality of their diversions. Hmm. It's a scary situation. This is one thing that really, uh, not, well, not one thing. This is one of the many things that bugged me about this story is this whole 
culture doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. There's certain things that they do, you know, they're really scientific, but they still worship these gods for no reason other than aesthetic qualities. Like, I just don't understand, that mindset is doesn't make sense to me. And not in a cool way where, well, that's, I can't get my head around it because it's so big. It just, it feels artificial. Well, I don't know. The Western world, we're pretty technologically and scientifically advanced, yet people are still attending church. And a lot of people, I don't know how fundamental those beliefs are for them. They go for family reasons or social reasons. Or... Yeah, but I, I, the way I read it, and that I understand, but I, mm -hmm. the way I read this is that nobody actually believes in any of these things, yet they all still do it. Yeah. yeah. So it's... Because it's cool. Because <laughs> it's cool, I guess? I don't know. <laughs> it just doesn't feel right when I, when I read yeah. that, and it still doesn't set well with me. Yeah, well, it doesn't uh, it doesn't sit well with Zamacone either, and um, <laughs> he, he he wants to leave now. Luckily, there's a woman with a heart of gold in his affection group. Talayab. Oh, sweet Talayab. <laughs> <laughs> she's a woman of moderate beauty and at least average intelligence. Yeah, she's all right. She's she can get by. She's, she she reads a book every month. I feel so bad. Talayab is is I, actually she's the one character in the whole story that I really connected with. I mean, I feel bad for her because she just kind of gets used by Zamacona. She here. totally gets used by Zamacona. She he convinces her to marry him, and she's kind of into it because it's sort of an old-fashioned idea in her society. But she really digs him, and she thinks he's neat. So she's like, "Yeah, I'll marry you." So they flipping flipping get married. Yeah, they're 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 hooked up together, and because she's descended from gatekeepers, the people that used to watch the passages into this subterranean world yeah as such she knows about one gate that leads out this would be our mound i believe mm -hmm. no everybody else has kind of forgotten about it so she says you know i can if you take me with you I'll, I'll lead you out yeah and he goes oh yeah that'll be cool all the while thinking secretly to himself well you know i'll ditch her when i get to the above <sighs> ground and i'll either hook up with a, an indian princess or a lady of spain i'll have all these yeah. choices because i'll have so much money i could pick whatever i want i'm like but jerk why would you i know <laughs> he's such a jerk uh well anyway so he he uh um he gets together with her and they get a couple of these wear unicorn deals and uh <laughs> they climb unicorns. on <laughs> well turn from a man into a unicorn <laughs> they're they're a hybrid between man and unicorn <laughs> all right they're they're manimals um <laughs> no, they, they climb on manimals. their why aren't they manimals <laughs> because that is a a, a playboy scientist whose father had given him the power to turn into animals. Oh, you're saying there's only one manimal. There's only one man manimal. Yeah, Simon McCorkendale. Oh, well, yeah, that's true. I guess you're right. I just, how dare I? Um, these <laughs> these half-human hybrid unicorns. Anyway, they climb on them, and they're going up. They travel up to the passage. Well, to get there, there's it, it, it's a, a trail that hasn't been used in a long time, and it's hard to get through this trail because it's been overgrown. And one of the beasts of burden gets just so annoyed with having to do it that he just goes, he turns around and splits. And they're like, oh, rats, he's going to tell everybody that we're up here doing this biz business. So we better hurry. Yeah, it's bad medicine. <laughs> so they get up to this cave and it's it's still unguarded and they start to go through it and make their have their little expedition. But they get busted. The guys come up and say, all right, you guys have to come back. And they go, okay. Uh, Zamacona doesn't get punished for it. No. No. However, Talayub. Yeah, Talayub, she gets, uh, she totally gets punished for it because she should have known better. This is seen as treasonous. And she uh, gets delivered to the arena yeah. where she will be used as, uh, to be mutilated and abused. And then her mutilated form will be reanimated and they'll give her a job, which is to be a headless sentry at night at that exit they tried to at leave. the new exit they think, yeah. And another guy 
who we've never met and is totally unaffiliated with these characters, is going to be the guy that works days. So that basically, at this point, you learn why those people are up there. Yep. And it's not, it's not even him. I, like, no. When they introduced her character, I thought, oh, here it is. It's going to be some love story uh, yep. where they, they try to make it out and it doesn't work out. They both get punished. You know, because they kind of set that up with the ghost story in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Clearly, there's some relationship between these, the man and the woman and what yeah. is it? Did yeah. he hurt her and, and blah, blah, blah. And then when we get to this, it's like, no, it's the woman. There's a completely unrelated guy up there. And uh, I didn't know if I could be more disappointed in the story, but this is the lowest point for me. I just thought, yeah. well, it was, this I'm is like, the what? worst kind of yeah, that's what I, I kept saying. I'm like, You've got to yeah. be. That's it. That is lame. Yeah. So anyway, the Zamacona is like, well, I know I'll be put up to the same fate eventually if I don't behave, but I still can't live down here. So I'm going to practice becoming Im- immaterial. I'm going to go out ghost style. And and the, and uh, that's what he determines. And the last entry in his manuscript is it is later than I thought I must go. That's the end of it. And that takes us into our final chapter, chapter seven. It's dawn. The ethnologist has been up all night reading this account. Mm-hmm. He's wondering, is this some kind of joke? Is this some kind of fraud? He tries to recruit some folks to go back to the mound with him, but obviously nobody wants to do that. He says, okay, no, but, you know, I got to do it. There's one good line here. It says, uh, I set out with the kind of bravado we display in nightmares. When knowing we are dreaming, we plunge desperately into still thicker horrors for the sake of having the whole thing over the sooner. Oh, that was kind of a cool. Yeah, that was a good line. Yeah. I like that one. Uh, so he heads up there. Mm-hmm. And what happens? He's got. He's still got his uh, gray eagle's talisman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hung around his neck. So it goes up to the mound, starts digging around, trying to figure out if he can find anything else. And then it starts to give way underneath his feet, and he kind of jumps back. But as he does, it just the whole thing collapses in, and he falls inside. Yeah, and he had had to dig it out with his, I think, his trench knife because the pick and shovel that he'd left up there previously were gone when he showed gone. up. So he yeah. didn't know what happened. But that passage reveals itself. He goes underground. He starts exploring. There's this kind of Chester Copperpot moment where he finds the belongings of other explorers that have gone down there. There's yeah. the two college students from 1915 who had disappeared. Uh, freak, yeah. Freaks him out a little he bit. He finds a flashlight down there, I think, too. Uh, but he keeps going. It says, as a Virginian, I felt the blood of my ancestral fighters and gentlemen adventurers pounding a protest against retreat. So <laughs> I thought that was good. Big surprise. He comes across <laughs> the subterranean passage that Zamacona had described from when he almost escaped. There's the figures of Tulu and Yig and all the bar reliefs and that kind of thing. Right. Uh, and he starts going crazy a little, especially when he sees there's all this debris and, and tokens from the outside world that have ended up down here, including his pick and shovel. Burr, burr, burr. Yeah. Like, how did they get in here? This doesn't make any sense. And then there's the flopping padding sound coming and he, he sees something, something that makes yeah. him flee, you know, run up, uh-huh. pass out on the mound. Um, and then eventually when he comes to, he, he leaves Binger and, and he doesn't tell anybody anything. Yep. We get it in the last paragraphs here. Now, he had cited early in the in the tale there's a guy named Heaton who had gone to the mound in 81, uh, 91 and had come back as a village idiot babbling for eight yep. years about all this stuff. Before. He said uh, specifically, that white man, oh, my God, what they did to him. Well, I saw the same thing that poor Heaton saw, and I saw it after reading the manuscript, so I know more of its history than he did. That makes it worse, for I know all that it implies all that must still be brooding and festering and waiting down there. I told you it had padded mechanically towards me out of the narrow passage, and it stood sentry-like at the entrance between the frightful idola of Yig and Tulu. That was very natural and inevitable, because the thing was a sentry. It had been made a sentry for punishment, and it was quite dead. 
besides lacking head, arms, lower legs, and other customary parts of a human being. Yes, it had been a very human being once, and what is more, it had been white. Very obviously, if that manuscript was as true as I think it was, this being had been used for the diversions of the amphitheater, or its life had become wholly extinct and supplanted by automatic impulses controlled from outside. On its white and only slightly hairy chest, some letters had been gashed or branded. I had not stopped to investigate, but it merely noted that they were in an awkward and fumbling Spanish, an awkward Spanish, implying a kind of ironic use of the language by an alien inscriber familiar neither with the idiom nor the Roman letters used to record it. The inscription had read, Sequestrado a voluntad de Hinayan in el cuerpo decapitado de Tlayub, seized by the will of Kinyan in the headless body of Tlayub. That's uh, the end of the story. Well, um, yeah, that was stupid. <laughs> I assume that's the body of, being that he's white, it was the body of Zamacono. He's some kind of, um, well, I can't really imagine what he looks like because he doesn't have a head or arms or lower legs or, I mean, what is it? Yeah, what the heck? Is he walking around just on his butt cheeks? <laughs> is that what he's doing? Oh, man, that's horrific. Now <laughs> I mean, that, It is kind of scary. Yeah, the true horror of the story is struck home. In retrospect, the rest of it was good now that you revealed what the uh, when he was walking around on his butt yeah, no. cheeks. <laughs> no, they said his lower legs were missing, so he, I guess, was walking on his <laughs> knee stumps or something like that. I don't but know. But what's man. the point? Like, why? I mean, it's gross. But why would you be scared of something that has not a head, arms, and not even legs? Like, what? It, what's it going to do to you? Oh, I don't know. I get it. I, I, just because it's so horrific and crazy. Uh, yeah. I don't know, man. It's one of those things that just seems gross. And then I thought about it, and I go, well, it's just kind of gross. It's not yeah. really scary. I don't know what to say, man. I didn't like it, and um, we spent three episodes mm. on it. I hope that, <laughs> that uh, uh, you know, we've at least had some fun with it, or, or they're we've sussed out the things that are interesting about it, but, um, yeah, there's a few, there's a few things, especially the first chapter, man. I, I love it. I just wish that the, 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 follow, the following six chapters weren't. Yeah. In I, existence know. I mean, you know, I like appreciate it's... that he has laid out, you know, there's a lot of science fiction world building here and, and I can appreciate that. It's just not, I just didn't think it was told that well. Though. No, it wasn't told that well. It's not that good or interesting. Like yeah. I, I have no I, no reason why I would ever want to return to this world. I feel like with good science fiction, you, they, somebody creates a world and it's just captivating, and you really want to keep going back to it. Mm. Uh, I I found no such interest. Uh, yeah, I didn't even like being there the first time. So, uh, any interesting facts about the story other than what we've talked about? I know no, that it, I mean um, we talked about it a little bit up front. You know, obviously Lovecraft Ghost wrote this thing. Um, yeah, it it started off with. The plot synopsis of there is an Indian mound near here, which is haunted by headless ghosts. Sometimes it is a woman. So that is the kernel that Lovecraft started the whole story right. with. He wrote it in December of 1929 to January 1930. So just a couple months he spent working on it. I can't imagine he spent that long working on it. Now, it wasn't uh, published, though, while he was alive. No, no. It didn't come out until 1940. And weird tales. How did the heck did this thing get published? The well, because August Derleth, um, he made some pretty heavy cuts. Ah, yes, yes. And I, I don't know what that looks like, but um, 
over the years, that was the version that was reprinted until I believe it was restored in the uh, horror in the museum and other revisions. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, so the full version is in there. The Love Dead, that yes. anthology uses, it's got the abridged Derleth version in it. Oh, it does? Yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah, I have so that. I have that Love Dead. I think you either don't publish it. I don't, I don't know if you should cut it. I don't know. I, it's one of those things I'm not sure about. I wonder if it's better because it's edited, but it's such a strange thing to edit somebody else's work without their input. So, I mean, again, I, uh, I, I, you know, I hate jumping on Lovecraft about any of this stuff because, you know, I write terrible things and I just don't let anybody see them. And I hate to think <laughs> right. if if I died that people would start going through my computer, like getting all the really crappy, crappy stories that oh, I've man. publishing that my dumbass emails, you know, like yeah. any of those things. And look, and, I mean, if this was this was a worthy exercise because I think it's practice for the world building that he does in Shadow Out of Time and at the Mountains of Madness. Yeah, that, absolutely. That comes out in a really cool way. So. Yeah, you know, whether this should have been published or not, I, I'm not sure. Well, uh, next time we have Medusa's Coil. Medusa's Coil, the last of the Zelia Bishop stories. Is uh, that a long it, one? I don't... Well, long or short, I heard it's not too good, so I don't think we're going to dedicate a ton of episodes to it. So we've got that coming up next, and then the uh, the readings of The Picture of the House and From Beyond are going to be released very soon. Very soon, finally. Um, yeah. Hopefully in a week we'll see we'll see so uh there's that and uh i'd like to thank everybody for taking this trip with us and yeah and thank uh, jimmy for uh his fine readings and and his feedback and his research and i yeah i i I appreciate everything you've done for us Uh, i can't quite agree with you on this one jimmy but uh good job yeah i love you anyway Mm. with that i'm chris lackey (laughs) i'm chad pfeiffer and this has been the hp lovecraft literary podcast at hppodcraft.com hppodcraft.com <laughs>